You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to your Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. Apologies for the lack of an episode last week. I kept trying to put aside time to write that week's show, but before I knew it, it was already this week. But no matter. I'll see if I can keep myself on task better in the future. This episode is actually one that I had planned to make for my second ever episode, but I never got the chance to write it then. Thankfully, I've been able to include it in Season 3. So, recently, there have been more and more headlines about continual service disruptions, ever-present late trains, and facilities deterioration throughout New York City's monolithic Metropolitan Transit Authority. It has 472 subway stations across four boroughs, making it the largest public transit system in the world in terms of station volume. Over five and a half million people ride it every day. But even as fares keep rising, the quality of service offered by the MTA seems to be in freefall. But why? Well, to answer that question, let's take a look at how the MTA came to be, with a special guest appearance by the subject of two previous episodes. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 37, Charlie on the MTA. So the beginnings of the subway, as we might be able to begin to recognize it, can be traced back to 1867 with the construction of the West Side and Yonkers Patent Railway, which operated as an elevated cable car, ran by mile-long loops of cable propelled by steam engines in the basement of neighboring buildings. Legal and technical troubles ultimately forced the West Side and Yonkers Patent Railway to fold. The fact that it was opposed by economically powerful horse and buggy companies didn't help. Eventually, in 1871 and 1872, it was restructured as the New York Elevated Railroad Company, which used traditional steam engines instead of cable loops to power their cars. The line would be electrified in 1902, and eventually decommissioned in 1940, with its stops assumed by the IND 8th Avenue line. The first of New York's transit rail would not last forever. But the lesson had been learned. Rail was the future of inner-city transport. Competing companies across the city began building elevated and ground-level railroads to serve the people of New York. The first were mainly excursion lines to Coney Island, Brooklyn. The race to build a rail system was on, but there was a problem. Up until this point, all the rail lines were above ground. That would soon change in 1869, when the Massachusetts-born inventor Alfred Beach began construction on an underground pneumatic demonstration line that ran 312 feet under Broadway. Initially, it was a spectacular success and raised a good deal of public support for the creation of a pneumatic rail system. 
but it would be another four years until the city gave him permission to build one. That same year saw the Panic of 1873, which, among other things, was caused by railroad speculation. The timing of the crash, that in 1873 was known as the Great Depression, meant that Beach would never have an opportunity to build his railroad. Underground railway construction would be put on hold until after the 1894 passage of the Rapid Transit Act. Afterwards, the planning for the IRT, or Interborough Rapid Transit Line, began. The first IRT branches, the Broadway 7th Avenue Line running from Times Square to 242nd Street, and the Lexington Avenue Line running from Wall Street to Grand Central Terminal, debuted in October 1904. Broadway 7th Avenue wouldn't be fully completed for another three years, while the Lexington Avenue line would be completed in 1905. Almost immediately, the economic impact of the subway was made clear, and groups of powerful businessmen, led by the likes of Joseph Bloomingdale, sought to influence the path of future lines so that real estate development didn't shift away from the Upper East and Lower West sides towards areas served by IRT lines. Bloomingdale and his allies sought to influence what they call, quote, the Belmont interests. After August Belmont Jr., the founder and main financier of the Interborough Rapid Transit Company. But now that I've talked a bit about the formation of the IRT, I need to backtrack a bit and talk about the formation of another company that would end up contributing to the vast maze of subway tracks under New York. The Brooklyn Rapid Transit Company, or BRT, which began constructing surface and elevated rail lines in 1896, but eventually graduated to subways. Now, prepare yourself for a second, because this might get a little confusing. Ready? Okay. From 1896 to 1907, the operation of BRT lines was leased to the Brooklyn Heights Railroad, an unrelated company owned by industrialist E.W. Bliss. From 1907 to 1912, the operation of BRT lines was handled by an operating subsidiary called the Brooklyn Union Elevated Railroad. In 1912, two separate companies were formed, the New York Consolidated Railroad, which operated the trains, and the New York Municipal Railway, which was purpose-built to enter into a transit expansion contract put forth by the city called Contract 4 which would add 618 miles of new track to a system that, at that point, only totaled 296 miles. Inflation from World War I and political maneuvering from Mayor John Hyland pushed the company towards insolvency, ultimately being resurrected in 1923 as the Brooklyn Manhattan Transit Corporation, also known as the BMT. At the same time that the BRT became the BMT, its two subsidiary companies, the New York Consolidated Railroad and the New York Municipal Railway, were merged to form the New York Rapid Transit Corporation. Hopefully that wasn't too much information too quickly. But fun fact, if you've ever traveled on the J, M, or Z trains on the Jamaica Line through Brooklyn, You've traveled on original BMT tracks laid down sometime between 1915 and 1922, which might sound cool, but is actually emblematic of a significant problem that I'll touch on in a bit. A slight side note, 
In the beginning of the 1900s, the war between George Westinghouse's alternating current and Edison's direct current was partially put to rest when New York Transit Lines adopted a DC third rail system, which is the standard for almost all modern subway lines. But let's get back on topic. At this point, both the IRT and the BMT were private operating companies whose essential actions, such as fare-setting, were controlled by the city government. There had always been talk, mainly from progressive reformist circles, of the city exerting more control over the subway operators. But the only way that that could happen would either be for the city to buy out the operators, or for the city to become an operator. And so on March 25th, 1925. A groundbreaking ceremony inaugurated the construction of the 8th Avenue subway line, operated by neither the IRT nor the BMT, but rather the IND, the independent subway system, wholly owned by the city of New York. The IND was the brainchild of Mayor John Hyland, who longed for a publicly operated subway system after he was fired from his position as a motorman on the BRT. IND lines would eventually expand to include what are now the A, B, C, D, E, F, and G lines. At this point, you might wonder what exactly happened to the BMT, IRT, and IND. Well, in June 1940, the fiscally insolvent IRT and BMT were bought by the city and placed under the jurisdiction of the Board of Transportation, who at that point ran the IND. In 1953, the MTA succeeded the Board of Transportation, and the New York City subway system entered a period of consolidation, where the city closed what they believed to be redundant systems. As a result, a huge number of elevated rail lines were dismantled. Now, this might be a little editorializing, but I think it's very important to note that during the private construction of these rail lines, demand dictated the extent of their reach. There were redundant transit systems because that's what ridership numbers dictated. Closing a transit line because it serves a community with a tertiary line can have significant and far-reaching effects on the development and well-being of that community, but I digress. At the time of consolidation in 1940, the IND lines were heavily in debt and expensive to run and maintain. The city thought that the profits from the former IRT and BMT lines would be able to offset the cost of the IND, but it turns out they were wrong. World War II brought back the wartime inflation that had helped kill off the first incarnation of the BMT. And even though there was a large increase in subway ridership after the war's end, it wasn't enough to balance out the backlog of work that was needed to maintain the extensive subway system. In the 1950s, the oldest cars being run on the MTA system were from 1904, when the subway first opened. The subway was in desperate need of modernization. And in order to survive the pinch that they were in, the MTA entered into a policy of deferred maintenance, which essentially allowed certain machines, equipment, and facilities to deteriorate in order to meet budget expectations. The use of deferred maintenance only kicked the can down the road, 
as costs that once perhaps would have only caused a relatively reasonable budget deficit began to mount and expand exponentially as more and more equipment began to falter and fail. And here is where our guest appearance comes in. There was one man that controlled the urban planning coffers in New York City, and in conjunction with the Port Authority, his Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority, which he ruled like a king, could have immediately provided the modern equivalent of approximately $11.6 billion, far more than enough to modernize the subway beyond the dreams of any 1950s urban planner. His name was Robert Moses, and he used his political power to intentionally take funding allocations away from the MTA and funnel it towards his creation of roads, highways, and parkways sealing the city in without thought to future rail expansion. Robert Cairo says in his book, The Power Broker, that, quote, when Robert Moses came to power in New York in 1934, the city's mass transportation system was probably the best in the world. When he left power in 1968, it was quite possibly the worst. In an ironic twist of fate, the place that Moses selected to be his base of operations in Long Island was the sprawling country estate in North Babylon that was once owned by none other than August Belmont Jr., founder of the IRT. And yes, I'm still working on the third part in my series on Robert Moses. It'll be out sometime. Anyway. Almost immediately after Moses left power in 1968, the city entered a financial crisis in the 1970s, brought on by economic stagnation, a massive deficit, and a municipal debt of over 11 billion 1975 dollars, which is 52.3 billion 2019 dollars. As a result, the subway infrastructure suffered further, with rampant violent crime and vandalization on subway cars. In the 1980s, an average of one-third of the MTA fleet would be unavailable during rush hour due to critical technical issues. Trains were a tenth as reliable as they were in the 1960s, which, I might remind you, was no pretty time for MTA reliability. The subway began to gradually improve after 1985, when the city passed an $18 billion subway rehabilitation measure. Subway crime would remain a significant problem until the 90s. So, after this long, long journey, this rise and fall and rise again, the MTA has fallen. Trains are becoming more and more technically unreliable. Delays are seemingly on the cusp of becoming the rule rather than the exception. And MTA facilities are deteriorating more with each passing day as it enters once again into a cycle of deferred maintenance. So, hopefully, with around 105 years of history behind them, the MTA and the government of New York City will be able to learn from their past missteps and contribute to building the MTA into a reliable service. But one last thing. Where did the title for this episode come from? Well, I'm glad you asked. Even though this episode is all about the subway system in New York, the title comes from a song of subway woes set in mid-century Boston. 
The song was written by folk singers Jacqueline Steiner and Bess Hawes as part of the leftist mayoral candidate Walter O'Brien's platform to protest the introduction of what are called exit fares into Boston's MTA system. An exit fare is when the rider is charged their fee, or part of their fee, based on where they get off the train. Bostonians found the system incredibly complicated and irritating, but it wasn't enough to win O'Brien the election, who finished dead last with 1.2% of the vote. So I've named the episode after it, so of course I've got to play it for you. Here's the Kingston Trio's 1959 version that popularized the song. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. Well, let me tell you of the story of a man named Charlie on a tragic and fateful day. He put ten cents in his pocket, just his wife and family went to ride on the MTA. Well, did he ever return? No, he never returned, and his fate is still unlearned. He may ride forever neath the streets of Boston, he's the man who never returned. Charlie handed in his dime at the Kendall Square station, and he changed for Jamaica Plain. When he got there, the conductor told him one more nickel. Charlie couldn't get off of that train. But did he ever return? No, he never returned, and his fate is still unlearned. He may ride forever neath the streets of Boston. He's the man who never returned. Now all night long, Charlie rides through the station crying, what will become of me? How can I afford to see my sister in Chelsea or my cousin in Roxbury? But did he ever return? No, he never returned, and his fate is still unlearned. He may ride forever neath the streets of Boston, he's a man who never returned. Charlie's wife goes down to the Scully Square station every day at quarter past two. And through the open window she hands Charlie a sandwich as the train comes rumbling through. But did he ever return? No, he never returned. And his fate is still unlearned. He may ride forever neath the streets of Boston. He's the man who never returned. Take it, baby. Citizens of Boston, don't you think it's a scandal how the people have to pay and pay? Fight the fair increase, vote for George O'Brien, get for Charlie of the MTA. Or else he'll never return, no, he'll never return, and his fate is still unlearned. He may ride forever beneath the streets of Boston, he's the man who never returned. He's the man who never returned. He's a man who never returned. Hey, to Charlie.